Thanks, Joe. Well done, brother. Yeah, um, so happy belated Reformation Day to you all. If you were following anything on Facebook on my feed, I was just going all Martin Luther all day. <laughs> so um, excited to sing Mighty Fortress is Our God on this day after that. It was good times. Uh, hey, would you turn with me to Isaiah 40? And then if you want to kind of put your finger there and, um, and maybe Mark also, we're going to be in Romans 8 as well. Um, a little backdrop. A backdrop um, can you bring it on? Yeah. A little backdrop on what we normally do. Uh, we, we teach expositively. Uh, so normally we will take a passage of scripture and we will teach through it verse by verse. Uh, you will maybe even note in our house churches, that's typically our model. We, we go through a study of scripture. We have been using First Sunday to do the same exegetical approach to Scripture, but to address key doctrines uh, for a couple of reasons, not the least of which, because the house churches aren't always on the same uh, physical page, and so for me to kind of once a month try to jump in is a little tricky. And secondarily, we want to make sure that we are establishing good, clear doctrinal boundaries uh, so that we can worship God. Uh, so interestingly enough, we did a series on the five solas of the Reformation, how salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, revealed by the authority of Scripture alone. And that went over so well. I, I mean, I just tried to run people off by just teaching just straight doctrine from Scripture. And then by God's grace, our church grew during that time. People were eager to hear doctrine taught. And so we have jumped into a series on the attributes of God. And so I'm setting this up for a couple of reasons. One is I need to explain why we're not just, you know, going through like Romans verse by verse. What we're doing here is taking truth that God has revealed and addressing it throughout Scripture so we can have a very clear understanding of who God is as he has revealed himself. Uh, There are multiple reasons for this, not the least of which is we have within our chests factories of idols. And we seem to find any way we can to worship anything but God or to worship some lesser version than the God of creation as he has revealed himself. And so part of what we're doing is simply looking at scripture and saying, this is what God says about himself. This is who he is. This is how he's revealed revealed himself. Let's worship him accordingly. So everybody with me so far? Good. So, side note, I don't need you to know all of the doctrinal words I use. So if you're like, wait, what was that word? That's okay, I'm going to explain them. What I need you to know is the truth of God as he has revealed it. I don't, if you don't remember some of these terms that I use, don't stress. You need to know the God that they are about. I'm just using the terms to help give us some framework here. So, when we talk about God's attributes, they're divided into two categories, communicable and incommunicable. Anybody remember what a communicable attribute is? You can cheat and look at the screen if you want. What is a communicable attribute? What makes an attribute of God communicable? That, yeah, that there is something that in us as image bearers of God, we have some finite parallel. Always find out, and I even have to set this up carefully, we are in a term or in a time where even in evangelical churches, they've been wanting to teach on this idea of us being little gods. It is rank heresy. Um, but we are image bearers of God. That God, when he created us, he wanted to bring as most, the most glory he could to himself. And so he created us with some finite human things that he has to an infinite degree, but he's done it so that he can reveal himself. One of them that we'll talk about today is knowledge. God is uh, omniscient, meaning he has perfect knowledge. We have knowledge, right? 
And so it's one of the things that allows us to know God. So we can say this is a communicable attribute in that we have knowledge, but God has it infinitely, for lack of a better term. But an incommunicable attribute is something that there's just no human parallel. Uh, For instance, we talked about God's aseity a couple of weeks ago, that he doesn't need anything from anyone or anything. He is the source of all things. He doesn't need our affection. He desires it. He doesn't need knowledge. He's already got it. That in within, when it comes to God's aseity, he has everything as a source of all things. That's an incommunicable attribute. Cool. So a little list of the incommunicable. This is just setting stuff up here um, while you all are turning to Isaiah 40 or whatever. Um, as we mentioned, aseity, that God is utterly independent and without origin while being the ultimate source of all things. We mentioned his immutability, that he is perfect and is not subject to change, though he is living and dynamic. We talked about God's unity, that he is uniquely one in number and not divisible, though we believe in the Trinity. You just can't chop up each member of the Trinity into separate. They're all God, right? Infinity, that God has no limitations save for self-limitations. We talked about that whole thing of that, like, you know, God can't lie, but that is not a limitation of his power. It's his own limitation in his goodness that he does not lie because it's against his nature. Cool? So that's incommunicable attributes. You're welcome to go to the website, listen to those sermons if you want to, or sign up for Underground Seminary where we're going into this in detail. We also have God's communicable attributes. These would be his spirituality, his intellect, his morality, and his sovereignty. Today we are going to focus on his intellectual attributes. Um, Everybody with me? Side note, we're getting into some like heady theology. Please feel free to ask if anything doesn't make sense. Uh, I recognize we are not in a living room right now, but I like interruptions for the sake of God's truth being clearly communicated. Cool. So, omniscience, that God is all-knowing. Omnisapience, that God is perfectly wise. And veracity, that God is perfectly true. Let's jump in and first speak of omniscience, that God is all-knowing. Some key things we need to understand about this. God is conscious. He is not some impersonal force. He's self-aware. He knows he exists. Don't let the pantheist or the panentheist tell you that God is just some mystical force without being. Like God is awake and alive. He's conscious. He's, he knows things. He's thinking and knowing. This is a real personal God. His knowledge is perfect in quantity and quality. In case you need to just get clarity, I think the idea of infinite knowledge is true of God, but it, I'm not sure that it's clear enough. Think of God's knowledge as perfect. There is no thing that he does not know. And of those things that he knows, he knows them perfectly. You don't have to worry about God not quite fully understanding something or that somebody knows something God doesn't. It doesn't work that way with God. He knows all things that ever will be. In fact, He knows everything from all eternity, including every potential thing that might have happened, even though it's not going to happen. God knows it all because from eternity, he has had perfect knowledge because of who he is. So thus, no one can add to God's knowledge. We're ready to jump in and talk some verses on this. Uh, Let's bring up that Isaiah 40 passage. You're going to be in verse 13 through 14. The prophet Isaiah is writing, and he asks these, his, these rhetorical questions. He said, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is, no one. No one offers counsel to the God of creation that already knows all things perfectly. 
You cannot add to God's knowledge. In fact, worth noting, I recognize that there are those uh, popular television preachers who have said things like, well, God asked me, I think it was Jesse Duplantis that said that God asked him his advice. It's blasphemy. Like, I'm like, man, are you trying to stoke the fires of hell more? Like, no, this, you don't add to God's knowledge. God does not need your advice. It doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. A couple of side notes here. When I think of God knowing all things, and I want to point out Hebrews 4.13 and 1 John 3.20, because two very intriguing things come up in relation to our standing before our Creator as it relates to His knowledge. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Typically in Scripture, nakedness is after the fall referred to as like a shameful thing. Like you're scared and ashamed. You can't cover yourself. This God of creation knows everything. It is as if you stand naked before him in a spiritual sense and he knows everything you have ever done wrong. You cannot hide neither your sin nor your attempted righteousness from God. You just can't. He knows all things, and we are going to have to give an account to those things. Does that terrify you? It should terrify us. And yet, some hope on the other side. For the lost person, this should terrify them. That God knows, you cannot hide this. He knows everything you've done. You're going to have to give an account. Oh my gosh. 1 John 3.20, though, speaks to the believer. And speaking to the believer, he says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So if I think that I can hide my sin from God, the writer of Hebrews says, No, you can't. You're going to have to give an account to that. And yet, if I think that I know better than the God who has forgiven me, for me as the believer who has repented, put my trust in the atoning work of Jesus, declared him as my Lord, I'm his child. And if I think that somehow in my shame that I'm too bad to be forgiven by God, if my heart somehow tries to condemn me, John says, no, Your heart is lesser than the omniscient God of creation who knows all things. And he is greater than even your heart that condemns you. If you are in Christ, this is, can you see how quickly this jumps right over to the gospel? Like I can't just talk about God being who he is and it not mean anything. Right? This God being who he is means I'm exposed and yet he has forgiven me and I cannot sin enough to outgrow his grace. This, is, this brings me comfort, man. To the lost person, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you should be terrified because he knows everything you've done and you're going to have to give an account. And the punishment for your sin is death. Eternal punishment. That's bad news, man. But the good news that is that in Christ... And through repentance and faith, you can have everything known about you and experience his unconditional forgiveness. Man, that's good. Repent and believe the gospel. So implications here of God's omniscience. This means from from the perspective, we've already talked about what this means for the gospel. But from the perspective of his care, that God cares for us with 
unlimited knowledge of the smallest details of our lives. We didn't even go into all the passages where it talks about he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls. This same God of creation knows the position of every leaf that has fallen and the, the side of every blade of grass. He knows it to the minimalist degree, to the d- d- absolute detail. And that same God says, you are my child and I love you and I will take care of you. This should give us great comfort, brothers and sisters. Secondarily, when it comes to prayer, this means that when I'm praying, I am not informing God of anything new. I am petitioning my Father, who already knows everything that I had need of before I even ask. And that in prayer, I am not just forcing him to do something. There is nothing like that. I'm not unleashing heaven's gates somehow. All I am doing is stepping into obedience. This God that knows what I need, this God that knows even more than I do what I need, gets to look at me and say, yeah, I just wanted you to ask, son. This is good news. It means I am perfectly cared for. It means my prayers mean something. I I read somebody had a, I don't remember, some reformer had this quote where they're like, well, if God knows everything, why, or, you know, and he's going to do everything, he's all powerful, why even ask? And I'm like, well, if he's not all powerful, why ask? Like, I'm petitioning the God of creation because he has commanded me to, and he already knows what I need, and I get to step into obedience with him as he provides for me. Good news. Omniscience. Um, Jumping on then, because we can't talk about him being all-knowing without talking about him being all-wise. We call this omnisapience, that God is perfectly wise. You do not have to know the term omnisapience. What you need to know is that God's perfectly wise. His plan is perfect. He's not going to have anything messed up for himself. Um, Romans 11 first. I know some of you are in Romans 8 if you want to skip like one or two pages over. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Notice, by the way, that knowledge and wisdom get mentioned together here because you can't separate God's attributes. They just go together. So how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This means you cannot scrutinize the judgments of God. It is beyond our ability to scrutinize. He is that far beyond us. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You guys, that should be familiar, right? He's quoting the same passage we read earlier. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. This God who knows all things took all of that knowledge into account as he put together his sovereign plan for creation to make sure that everything that comes about is in accordance with his plan. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, I recognize this passage is often used in debates between Calvinists and Arminians. Lay that aside for a moment as we just look to what God has revealed. He says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You guys understand what's happening here? That the God of creation who knows all things and is perfectly wise took into account even the free acts of men to make sure that everything would come about for your good and for his glory. I I get some comfort in this knowing that, like, I mean, he says all things working together for good according to those who are called according to his purpose. This means that everything, 
The most tragic of circumstances, the most heinous of crimes, the deepest of losses, he had a plan in that. This is not to say that God forcibly caused it, but he certainly knew every free act from all creation. He says, I'm going to make sure that even that sinner doing that wicked thing, it will somehow work out to the good of my kids and to the maximum glory for me. That's huge. Then he, reading on, he says then that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Every now and then when I, when I fight with my Calvinist brothers, I remind them, like, you don't get to be a jerk because this predestination is for you to become like Christ. And so sometimes then the cage stage Calvinists have to step back and humble themselves. I'm like, you don't get to be a jerk. Like, yeah, your, your, your election may be sure. Praise God for that. But he's making you into Christ. And if you are not becoming like Christ, you better be terrified as to whether or not you are his child. This gives me some comfort. If you are a believer, if you have put your trust completely in Christ and you really are surrendered to him, this means that your Christ-likeness is sure. That God will make sure that you become like Jesus. Fully in eternity, but even throughout this world, you get this opportunity to grow in him. This is good news. Everybody with me? I recognize we're covering a lot of ground here because... I want to make sure we're clear on the God we're worshiping. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking that we would have clarity so that we could delight in him fully. Cool. So some implications here. Um, as we've mentioned, this means the maximum good for us. Wisdom is knowledge applied to God's perfect plan to bring about the best good for those who love him and the most glory for himself. Man, that's good news. Maximum glory for God. God's glory is the ultimate purpose of all things. The point of glorifying himself is to reveal who he really is. Man, so God just gets to show off. And that is the most good that can happen is that we get to see him for who he is. This means then that whatever happens is in accordance with his plan. We've mentioned this. He already knows what we need. Even the worst stuff. I, I never want to minimize tragedy. And I'm not going to be the person that's like, ha ha, Rejoice in all these things. But I might be able to step in and say, like, in the worst circumstances as a pastor, when I can stand next to somebody and say, this did not shock our creator God who loves us. You're his kid, and he has a plan for even this tragedy. I have stood beside people dying. I have stood beside people who have lost their children in infancy. It is painful, but, man, you get to grieve with hope when you know that the God of creation knew this from before eternity and he had a plan and even though it seems impossible to us, he is working it out for his glory and our good and my job is simply to trust him. Yeah. So related, you can hopefully see how these kind of trail together. The veracity of God, that he is true, truthful, and faithful. When we speak of God's truth, we are talking about the fact that he is the God of truth. What he is is in accordance with reality, and what he reveals is certain and in accordance with reality. Thus, when we talk about his truthfulness, because he is the God of truth, what he reveals is truth. Understanding this, that since God is perfectly true, anything he says is also perfectly true. There's a shade of difference between truth and truthfulness. Truth is who he is. Truthfulness is what comes from him. Right? This means that his word is true always. Third, his faithfulness. God fulfills his promises, that is his covenants, perfectly. 
Our hope is sure because our hope is in Him. There is no need to despair. This God, who is all-knowing and perfectly wise, is also perfectly true. His words are truthful, and He is faithful, completing what He promises. That means if the promise is in His word, it will happen because it is His very word and He is true. This is why I want to tear my hair out when somebody tries to talk about like, oh, well, that's Old Testament. doesn't really mean anything for now. Or this, you know, the, the New Testament is like 2,000 years old. We're looking for something fresh. And I'm like, this is fresh. His word is perfect. There are promises yet to be fulfilled that are still coming. There are promises that have been revealed that are still being fulfilled in me now because he promised he would conform me to the image of Son and he would work everything together for my good and his glory. This gives me a lot of comfort. All right, so some passages here. Hebrews 6.18, we speak of truth that says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This language that God cannot lie, it is impossible because it is against his very nature. Praise God for it. John 17.17 17 says, Sanctify them by in the truth, your word is truth. Understanding that this means that God is truthful, but it also means that His very Word is true always. It does not diminish in its truth. It doesn't age in its truth. It stays truthful forever and remains powerful from the moment it was spoken or the moment it was written all the way into eternity because it is His Word. Cool? So some implications here. If God cannot lie... Not only does he know all things, everything he said is true and binding. God's word is sure. Thus we can stake everything on his word. Our lives, our livelihood, our possessions, our family, our friends, even our eternity gets put on trusting his word. This should be pretty big. If God says, do this because you're my child, my obedience leans directly into the fact that I might be looking like I'm risking everything, but he told me and his word is sure and I'm trusting him. Cool? Thus, this is a, a third thing I just want to mention. Scripture then provides the only true and logically cohesive worldview. This is just kind of something worth noting. An implication of all of this is because God is the God of truth, Everything he says is truthful. His promises are always sure. That means that there is nothing else. There's, I mean, he didn't just kind of do something else in another religion, right? This is his only true word, Scripture, right? So that means that the biblical worldview is the only logically cohesive, perfectly true worldview. That should be kind of encouraging. It means that when I go out on a limb and cite scripture about something, I don't just kind of hope it works out. I get to speak with confidence saying, this is what God says, and I'm going to stand on it. And if we get used to seeing the unity and perfection, by the way, the more we study scripture, the more we see it's just so perfectly unified because it is one clear revelation from God then when I apply that in discussion, I get to start seeing that like, hey man, no other worldview gets to line up cohesively because they're all made up by flawed men. Just a little side note of encouragement. This is great encouragement and comfort when I'm evangelizing or when I'm doing apologetics and giving a rational defense for the hope that is in me. 
Um, let me just encourage you, if you haven't, read the book Expository Apologetics by Vodi Bakum. Came up, I was already planning on mentioning it, brother. Came up in a discussion today. A wonderful way to just kind of look at like, here's what God has said, here's how it fits together, and here's how I can know a few clear things in Scripture and be able to really answer just about anybody. Um, some of you guys might have watched the debate between Jeff Durbin, James White, and a couple of atheist guys. And the, the, the Christians just started off praising their opponents, saying these guys are wonderful, brilliant men created in God's image. They're smart. They're doing wonderful things for their fellow image bearers. And everything they say in contrast to God's existence still rings with the reality that they couldn't even say it had not God given them breath. They wouldn't even be able to claim knowledge were it not for the fact that we are created by an all-knowledgeful God. And they just, they're like, so every argument they make is still just proving our point, guys. And they have to stand, and then, and of course, then the atheists don't like this because they stand up and try to give an argument. One of them even says, because they ask him, like, what do you do about knowledge? How does knowledge, if you think everything's an accident, well, then that means your brain is an accident. What is knowledge? And I kid you not, this brilliant atheist stands up and says, I got nothing on that. I, and he proceeds to make some other argument, but he has to acknowledge that he doesn't even believe that knowledge is a thing. Wonderful thing. Side note, recommend checking that out. Cool. So, what is our response to all of this? I recognize we've talked today, hopefully you've kind of noticed, those of you who have been here for some of the other ones, how already you see how these, these you know, attributes, we, we touched on a saiety here. Um, we touched on God's righteousness. We talked about that God's attributes are perfectly unified together. You can't chop them up and like have this one and that one and that one. They go together because he is one God. Good news, right? It's incredible news. So then how are we supposed to respond to this, man? Well, hopefully, I don't know about you. I'm comforted. Like, I had a rough start to today. We, there are things that struggle and stress me, but I recognize that those things are part of his plan. For crying out loud, even my mistakes, he knew I was going to do them. He's got a plan to work them out for my good because I love him and because he, he, I'm his kid, right? So then I always remind us, when they asked Jesus what the first and greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Right? The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. You recognize that this all goes together, right? That God's command, by the way, his language of love is this delighting in thing, right? That my response when I see God as he is should be to worship him and just say, God, you're amazing. And delight in that fact that as a follower of Jesus, I get to experience all the benefits of having my Father know all these things and care about me like this. Worship and love should be our response. That's why like, when I'm delivering these things about God, I don't ask you to go and do something or sign up for something. I just simply say, just respond and say, God, you're amazing. Delight Him. Dwell on these realities. Dwell in His Word. Be comforted and joyful. Delight in God. This is good news. Here's the other thing. I can't mention this without just giving the gospel, brothers and sisters. Because the reality, if you look at this God of creation and you, you want to hide, then maybe it's because you're not his kid, right? Because two things away, either judgment or grace. There will either be, for the, as you stand before this God of creation, you will either face judgment because you are not his kid or you will have grace because you are his kid. So, really simple thing, God created us in his image, right? 
He had a plan for us to be in relationship with him. We sinned and separated ourselves from God. God is perfect. As we have mentioned all these things, he is perfectly sinless and cannot be in relationship with sin. So when we sinned, we separated ourselves from God. He is the source of life. The punishment for sin is death, but also in my sin, I'm separated from the source of life anyway. There is an eternal punishment that awaits, not to mention all of the brokenness that this world has. But God still loved us, and so Jesus, fully God and fully man, came to this earth, died to pay the penalty for our sin, took on our sin. Peter writes about this. He took on our own sin, died in our place. We call this the substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement. He died for us and then rose from the dead. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's this language of, I'm acknowledging the truth of who you are and what you have done, God. I'm repenting of my sin and declaring you, Jesus, the Lord of my life. I am not a big fan of like the magic word phrases because I feel like people can just say stuff. And I'm like, this is not, we're not Muslims. Muslims, you can just kind of repeat this phrase and you're in. No, what we're talking about is repentance and faith. That you acknowledge who he is and you acknowledge you are not him and you repent and put your trust in him. Simple as that. If you want to do that, you got questions, let's talk. But do it if you have not. Let's pray, and then we've got a couple of exciting things we need to talk about. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would take these meager words I have spoken. May they, um, Lord, if, there, if I have spoken anything even, even slightly unclear, or worse, if I've spoken anything incorrect, Lord, may it be forgotten. <laughs> may I be corrected. Um, but then, Lord, may your truth be known. God, you deserve glory far beyond what we could ever give you. And so we meagerly and, meagerly and humbly say, Lord, you're good. Thank you for being who you are. We love you. May we delight in you today. May we delight in you tomorrow. And for the rest of eternity, receive glory. May also, Lord, may we just be comforted in this. Lord, we get to say that our Father knows all things and is perfectly powerful to work all things together for our good. God, I don't know. I, there's nothing better. So receive glory. Lord, if there's anyone who does not know you, Lord, may my meager gospel presentation be understood. May they seek to know you so that they come to complete repentance and faith. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.